0: Into cybersecurity CISO Thursdays. And for all of you joining us on LinkedIn, thank you for joining us. Um, make sure that you follow myself and our guests. If you're joining us on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and then hit the notification button so that the next time we come live, I'll pop up on your screen. And for those of you joining us on podcasts, don't forget to share it with your friends and families. Thank you. Uh, so today our guest, I, I always mess it up, Ashnu, um, can you introduce yourself? Hi,
1: <clears throat> my name is Anshu Gupta. I'm a cybersecurity practitioner. Uh, been in the industry for a long time, uh, working, started my career in the big four in, at anston Young and KPMG, and then moved on to the startup world where I established security programs at companies, including Coupa, HelloSign, Bank, and recently at FAST. I'm also part of a global uh, syndicate of a global CISOs called Silicon Valley CISO Investors. Uh, and I'm, thank you for inviting the show. Glad to be part of it. Absolutely.
0: Um, well, I wanted to touch on that, that interesting part there. I didn't know you were part of um, the CISO syndicate. In, in regards to that, what does a CISO look for when they're looking to invest in a, a, a potential startup company? So I think one uh,
1: uh, idea which came, the reason I think the SVCI came about to be is that practitioners have the best idea as to what does the industry need. And typically um, investors will do their own due diligence and they look at the team, they go to market. And we, as practitioners, basically are extremely well suited to do this due diligence. Apart from, so there's a little bit of complementary skill set where how do you establish a SPV to do the investments and so on. But from a due diligence and even from shaping, because many times, if you especially invest in early stage companies, mm-hmm. uh, might not have the exact product market fit. And you can help them prioritize features. You can guide them in the right direction. You can help them avoid big mistakes. You can introduce them to the right stakeholders, You know, help them as design partners and so on. So there's a lot of value add that practitioners can bring uh, apart from uh, being at a
0: purely investment vehicle. And I know you've had um, expertise in, in, in the startup space. So I'm gonna kind of stay there in, in regards to um, our questioning. What, what should a startup look for and potentially its uh, first or second security hire for those individuals that are looking to break into the field and potentially work in a startup as their first security hire? Absolutely. So I think you bring a very
1: uh, interesting question that um, startups, when in initial phase, they need someone who is a bit hands-on uh, and can take on some of the technical challenges as they come along, uh, and especially when you're building the product, uh, security engineering is one of the most important functions. Where uh, is our back end secure? Is our application secure? Are we introducing the right security features at the product customer-facing uh, uh, feature functionality level? So I would say that it's a different skill set. Uh, as compared to when you're more mature, you have a larger team. And some of the skills are more around people management, that how do you keep the team engaged? How do you keep the team motivated? There are a lot more external stakeholders, like if, if you you know go public, uh, as the company grows. But initial in the initial stages, you do need someone uh, who can roll their sleeves up um,
0: um, and, and be more technical. Would you say that the first... Security hires might be more on the application security side, the infrastructure security side, or they, they actually need to have a little bit of everything? Um, so, I think there are two different approaches.
1: One is what I call a top down approach, and one is bottoms up approach. And basically, they're depending on the risk appetite and what the company's trying to accomplish. Uh, so one approach, the top-down approach is that you hire a leader who has been there, done that, has made those mistakes, is you know uh, fairly uh, experienced. Mm-hmm. And then you bring these specific functions of compliance, application security, and uh, cloud or infrastructure security. So I tell people that if you want to do c- security seriously, even in an early stage, you actually need a four-person MVP team where you have one leader who has been there, done that has handled all the security domains of GRC, security engineering, security operations, corporate ID security, and privacy engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you uh, have at least three people, like one person to handle the GRC function,
0: one application security engineer, and one cloud security engineer. And at w- w- what stage of a startup would they have a four-person security team versus say a one-person security team? yeah
1: so again it depends on like how much funding do you have uh, and i'm glad that you know a lot of companies are raising big rounds these days uh, and given uh, the state of uh, you know threat actors operating uh, i think it's security is a must have it shouldn't be an afterthought and companies if possible should invest for uh, you know to make sure they avoid any existential risk uh, and for brand uh, reputational uh, risk management i think early investment security is always good.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. I think what's interesting for for those breaking into the field and targeting startups is when should they approach a startup in regards to being interested in them? If they're a 50-person startup versus a 100-person startup, what sort of skill sets might they need uh, as they grow?
1: Yeah. So I think people who are <clears throat> uh, new to cybersecurity and entering the field, uh, I would say that uh, one, uh, there is no substitute to hands-on learning, which is you need to s- start approaching not be, scared. The, the worst thing is that you might not know. And even like people I know, some people are really good at AppSec and they're skilling up in cloud security. Some people are good in cloud security and they want to upskill in AppSec. Or maybe they want to upskill in compliance. So everyone in the security field is learning all the time. Uh, so which means that no one is perfect. All of us have our own learning goals at, at the highest level. Like I have a huge learning plan, which I hope I finish before uh, uh, you know die, I guess. So you have to constantly, that's the beauty of being in this field, that you constantly have to challenge yourself to
0: learn and grow as a professional. We've talked about like the, the individual journey as a CISO, how do you deal with the, the, the challenges of wanting it to be secure versus uh, business enablement and pushing the business mission? How do you have those tough conversations when someone, uh, another business leader might be more focused on moving fast versus moving securely?
1: Yeah. So the, uh, You know, I always say that these days, um, our function, the security function, is not just a pure risk management function. It's also a function of education and awareness that we are educators. We uh, work with different stakeholders in the company and educate them that, hey, one, why is this needed? And two, if you do this you'll be able to actually move faster uh, so it's uh, security is not there you know it's literally the proverbial brakes in a car the brakes are not meant to slow you down the brakes are meant so that you can go fast in a safe fashion and stop when required so security are like these you know brakes in a car security is a business enabler
0: security is not meant to slow you down I, I love that analogy and and some people like to think that they could go fast without brakes, but they're, they're going to need to slow down um, in, a, in a safe manner to come to, to be able to, to come to a stop. But um, so as as the organization grows, as it matures from a startup to potentially going public, what are some of the major security changes that that come with that, that a security practitioner should be aware of?
1: Yeah. So when, as the company matures and, you know, the, the going to the public journey, so uh, at least in US, I mean, we have Sarbanes-Oxley and they have this concept of ITGC or IT general controls, which have huge emphasis on access controls, change in configuration management. Uh, so those come into a little bit play where you're going to be audited by a public accountant, certified public accountant. Who is going to, you know, sign an attestation that you actually meet uh, these controls and these controls controls have been designed properly and they're operating effectively. So there's lot more uh, stringency uh, uh, to the level of uh, uh, to the controls that you established. So they're all very well documented. You need process documents which have been reviewed, approved in a timely fashion all these controls should be operating effectively. And, you know, when these auditors come in, they'll sample uh, from the population of changes or uh, whatever control it is. So it's very much more stringent than when you are just operating and doing maybe one compliance standard, like a 2 or a
0: PCI or a HIPAA. You mentioned the the, the compliance standards. What are some of the main ones that do you feel organizations are going for and what, what's the emphasis that might be pushing some of those standards?
1: Yeah. So the biggest one is customer trust that you get, you try to it. Uh, so one is regulatory risk that if you have certain kind of data, then you have to get it. If you have electronic patient health information, you have to uh, be HIPAA compliant people you do business with are going to require it that, you know, we will not sign a business associate agreement with you unless you, are compliant to the HIPAA controls. Uh, But these days, the major one for customer trust is the SOC 2, which companies will use to establish to their customers that we have uh, security controls in the domains of security, confidentiality, processing integrity, and availability, and privacy in some cases established. Uh, And we have controls against uh, these major trust criteria. So that's the major one, uh, at least in the U.S. market for now. Internationally, I see ISO 27001 be more acceptable because people really don't know what software is there.
0: No, definitely. I, I wanted to take a, a, a break for a moment and um, display some of the comments from our listeners because this is a live show. So we have, um, oops, we have uh, David Mesa saying. Uh, thank you so much for the professional insights to what makes a great security team. And then we have Jared from uh, the FIU apprenticeship program saying thank you for your insights. Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for all all the details that you're going into. I think oftentimes we we get concerned with the day to day happenings, but might not know background as to how to build a security team and and to go into those conversations. Um, so now, now that we've kind of built up the team, we've, um, look at some of the compliance standards to get ready to go, go public or to build that customer trust. What, what do we do next? Um, what, what are your, some, what are some of the first departments that, that you might set up earlier? You mentioned a couple of them and I wanted to go in more details as to the order in which you might approach them. Yeah.
1: Uh, So I think uh, companies, like if they're really lucky, maybe, you know, they'll get someone, what I would call it, like a full stack security engineer who can do both application security and cloud security, but that's very rare. So ideally, you know, you have maybe DevOps team handling some of the cloud security responsibilities and maybe you want to hire your first application security engineer and then, you know, take on these security responsibilities away from the DevOps or the infrastructure team and have a dedicated person uh, do second line of defense controls around scanning, making sure uh, everything uh, uh, from an architecture perspective, from a edge security is in place. Um, So the GRC function, like depending on if you you have regulated data, I mean, you know, becomes very important as well. Uh, many times I have seen people will hire uh, consultants to help them with getting their first compliance standard. But again, you have to run, run it as a program which means that you'll at some point in time, you'll have to hire someone full-time who has ownership and accountability of your different compliance programs, especially if you have to comply to multiple regulations. I also see that companies which are trying to do uh, business in the EU, so there's huge uh, privacy requirements. So I've also seen, I'm also seeing that depending on the company size and the customers you have, people are hiring privacy program managers early on as compared to having that functionality being uh, performed by this one person who's handling the GRC program.
0: Oh, you, you mentioned um, potentially having someone in the DevOps team and then someone in second line. Uh, uh, this is gonna be the tough question. <laughs> Where should the CISO sit in the, the first line of defense or in the second line of defense? What, what's, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, one thing is the lines of defense, I think, are not, in my at least opinion, are not very well understood. So first line of defense are people who are actually operating the control. So a security person doesn't deploy patches. So the real security control is someone like, okay, we have a vulnerability and you actually patch it up. You run a script or you have automated means to do patching so that DevOps engineer is actually performing a security control and is the first line of defense, a person who's actually operating the control, a security engineer, a cloud security engineer, whose job is to make sure all the processes are set up to make sure that you know uh, patch triage happens, patch testing happens, patches are actually getting getting deployed, and then having a detective control in terms of scanning so establishing the the whole pipeline of a patch intake, you know, patch testing, patch deployment from a process perspective, automated or uh, manual, and then a detective control if a patch has actually been deployed and if we miss something through some sort of scanning. So that's the second line of defense that a sec- cloud security engineer should help establish how the first line of defense uh, deploys the control and then has detective controls to make sure that the control is operating effectively. So it's it's a collaborative work, uh, but the first line of defense is still the person who's actually uh, doing the
0: job. Okay. Okay. So it's kind of in between. You need a little bit of here and there, especially in early on in the stage. Um I wanted to touch on some more comments. We have Sterling that's saying that um great outlook. This is very very insightful, great show. Um and then we have Mai that's saying great points on the early stage setup of the security team. Um, well, thank, thank you everyone for the comments. Uh, so now that we've kind of grown the, grown the team and we've evolved, we, we have some first line, some second line. Um, how do you grow from there? Do you uh, continue to grow on first line? Do you build out like the second lines as the business grows? Like w- what's your approach?
1: Yeah. So uh, the one thing which I think I comment I would like to make about the second line of uh, defense, which again, in my opinion, is uh, not well uh, understood. So second line of defense doesn't mean that you are only setting policy and you're just an audit function. You are actually responsible for all the security tooling, which acts as detective control. So you own the scanning, you own any detective technology, including security monitoring. That all falls under second line of defense. Uh, And many times I'll see organizations say, oh, oh, no, the CISO or the security leader, second line of defense. The only thing he or she does or they do is, uh, you know, setting policy and defining uh, what needs to be done. But they don't touch anything, which Mm -hmm. I think, in my opinion, is like a flawed uh, understanding of what second line of defense means.
0: Good point, good point. David said, um, good point on the first line of defense can be confused with other lines of responsibility. So, you mentioned that um, the second line is the one that that's, that does the scanning. Are, are they the one that does the scanning or ensure that the scanning gets done and then ensures any vulnerabilities that gets uh, highlighted also gets remediated?
1: Yeah, no, they own the whole thing end to end. The control okay. is that you know we run the scan, we triage it, and you know make sure that it actually gets fixed. They don't fix it themselves. Uh, okay. That's the responsibility of the of the cloud DevOps team or the infrastructure team, but they own the whole control end to end.
0: Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. I think uh, as as you grow larger. Uh, that, that separation then becomes a, a little more um, defined, so to say. So as, as we continue to grow larger, um, that function of running the infrastructure, like IT, endpoint management, things like that, when does some of that roll off the first line and security gets less hands on?
1: Yeah, no, so I think you bring actually an excellent point around like, especially around corporate ID security. And I feel that, you know, some of that responsibility and uh, the maturity in the industry in particular, that some tools that, you know, IT actually can run uh, endpoint security by themselves, where uh, the security team is just involved in the investigation and if uh, something needs to be done. But the day-to-day, which is making sure the endpoint agent is actually deployed, Uh, Mm -hmm. a machine, if it needs to be wiped, you know, those all responsibilities as uh, lie within corporate IT and security can be involved more in the investigation piece of it that, you know, if we had an incident uh, did we have any data
0: exfiltration um, uh, or so on. So you bring up an interesting point of creating that incident response function. When when does that get built out Uh, within a program like how early on do you start to create those programs within your overall security umbrella so one thing is i think security
1: operations um under which the incident management program resides is one of the least understood uh you know functions that one people really don't understand uh, that how deep it is uh, and it's a specialized skill set um so typically companies will, depending on the requirements, uh, the approach, which I see is that they'll hire uh, some sort of managed security provider. Um, and again, typically you'll have, uh, you know, have seen companies which do both for the endpoint and for your production infrastructure, or mm-hmm. you would have companies who, you know, two separate companies, you know, one focusing on endpoint. Uh, the MDR solutions and one focusing on the production, which is more on the the same side and uh, uh, where you are doing log aggregation and correlation. But if you look at security operations, it's, uh, if you look the, the whole process, like, you know, one thing which I always tell uh, say people that incident management is actually about problem management, that you really want to go to the root cause of why this is happening, because incident are symptoms. And even uh, things like uh, that how do you have a, do you have a process around uh, n- understanding what's bad for you? Is it like one failed login is it three fair logins? So having a whole program where you have the logging infrastructure well established, detecting, de- detection rules well defined and a process to curate uh, existing rules and add new ones because if you add like just keep on adding without uh, de- uh, really defining what's important to you, you'll have a deluge of alerts and you will not be able to respond to it. So it's very, very crucial, like, you know, just having uh, your detection governance uh, well-defined. And then you have simple processes of triage, you know, L1, L2. um, And the other big thing which I don't see is that uh, the containment and recovery piece is not very well-defined. So typically for forensics, you say, hey, oh, we have a forensic firms. If we have a data incident, you know, if we feel that something bad happened and we can engage uh, someone on retainer. But uh, containment and, and recovery is something which is security and uh, infrastructure DevOps teams, uh, joint responsibility. And that thing is still, I think people are working on it from, mature, from a maturity perspective, which is that what will we actually do if something happens? Do we have automated and manual runbooks uh, to be able to do containment that if an attack happens we can actually contain the attack and we can recover from the attack and you can't do that unless you have already thought that what uh what uh, bad can happen so for example if our password hashes are stolen do we have a runbook to you know reset all our user passwords maybe even in tranches in the next one hour and i can i can almost say that you know uh, most of the companies you know i see uh, haven't gone through this process is what can go wrong and do we have appropriate uh, runbooks
0: for rec- from a containment and from a recovery perspective? So, so potentially starting um, at, at a threat modeling point of view, uh, doing a threat model, all of the potential uh, things that can happen and then creating playbooks after that. Yeah. And
1: the lack of the security operations functions, since it's not well understood, means that people don't get hired in that function. Uh, and since there is no visibility and that's why, you know, I feel that a lot of companies like they already breached the decision and don't know it because mm-hmm. they simply don't have the infrastructure where these incidents are being monitored on an ongoing basis with the detections clearly defined.
0: So something you mentioned earlier with regards to outsourcing, um, what's your viewpoint for a early startup of outsourcing to an MSSP versus hiring someone on in full time
1: so i think uh outsourcing that particular responsibility is a i would say is a is almost like a uh, bridge towards building that capability as you grow because uh if you have a partner uh where they have already defined you know the ingestion mechanisms you know they can put in the lock collectors they already know how to parse the logs from different kind of uh, systems that you have and can quickly give you visibility. And even if they can give you 90% visibility into what's going on, it's better than nothing. So I think if companies can leverage partners uh, in, in this space uh, till they build that uh, maturity within their they have their own uh, full-time people who really understand uh, the infrastructure, because to do incident management, you really need to understand the uh, like the ins and outs of the infrastructure. That when it comes to incident investigation, like how do I know this is a false positive or a true positive unless I really understand
0: what's going on? And that becomes an interesting part when when you do outsource, right? Is that they'll eventually escalate it back to you and you're then responsible for the rest of the incident management and uh, the containment and recovery, like you mentioned, uh, that, that part seems to drop off as you mentioned as well. Um, so uh, another question here. So we, we've, we've grown the team and potentially at this point we have uh, a manager, maybe a director level individual that has uh, a couple teams underneath him Um, how do startups deal with maybe needing someone that has more experience at that CISO level? Do they bring someone on part-time? Do they hire consultants to uh, finish building out the program uh, for that maturity level, for uh, preparing for investors? Um, What's the approaches that you've seen? Yeah. So honestly, like I feel that
1: companies should... Depending on you know how much you know money they have, they should hire the best available person for the job. Which means that because when you are hiring a CISO or a security leader, what you are really hiring is experience. So I don't think that you know it's uh, the title or anything. You are actually hiring a person who has you know been in the trenches, made those mistakes, knows how to build a security program uh based on your own risk acceptance and based on the industry you are in so you're actually hiring experience Uh, and my recommendation is that you know if you have the money hire the most experienced person you can and you know build a team top down which is uh, hire a person who has been there uh and learned from experience because you know all of us have been in all kinds of situations we've made tons of mistakes so we have learned from experience uh and then we can you know build these functions and uh, make sure that you can get the same job done more efficiently because many times i'll see you know companies will you know which have a bottoms-up approach which is not bad i mean maybe that's uh, uh, you know the resources available to you at that point in time and you can't hire a really senior person uh but uh, that's is that you will learn some lessons along the way in a, in a more expensive fashion versus bringing in someone early on who can guide you in the right direction so you can basically achieve your business goals faster. You can get the right compliances. You can make sure there's no uh, major incidents uh, along the way. Your architecture is, you know, well done. Your backup's happening. Your disaster recovery is in place. Uh, so that's like my personal recommendation is hire. Uh, if you're building a team, uh, you know, uh, top-down and bring the
0: most experienced person you can based on the resources available to you. Makes sense, makes sense. And then um, in regards to the types of skills that you're seeing are the most in demand, I know earlier you mentioned application security, cloud security, do you you see those as the biggest areas of growth uh, for those entering the security field?
1: Yes, it's absolutely. I think those uh, two are the most in demand because you know you're pushing code. You need someone to make sure that uh, you know uh, uh, all the code is secure. You know, security code, secure code training has been given to developers. Someone who is security minded uh, is helping them to make sure that you know we put the best, uh, most secure product out there. And cloud security is like your all your entire backend. But, uh, so those are you know where I call it the rubber meets the road. Uh, when it comes to security, engineering, application security, and cloud security, where majority of the
0: real preventive controls uh, are put in. You mentioned teaching the developers to do secure code. Do you see non-technical roles that um, can teach that awareness, that can communicate those messages to the the dev teams, potentially work in a DevOps-like environment, um, someone transferring from a non-technical background into that type of role as being helpful?
1: No, no, absolutely. So I think one thing is every company is going to have a different development platform, different language. Uh, and even like for security professionals, when you, you know, switch uh, jobs, you literally have to learn the security paradigm around the platform and the language that is being used. And then train the developers. So you can have definitely like, you know, have some OAS top 10 like online training. But when it gets to nitties and gritties about the security paradigm around a particular platform or language, you actually have to learn it yourself. So I think that, you know, a person who is not done even, you know, any security, if they come in a company, understand the security paradigm around the platform and language, they can actually start with that because. Literally, if you study it, and, you know, like, for example, I, think I remember, like, at one company, we had Ruby on Rails. And I literally, I had never done Ruby on Rails security. And I printed out the Ruby on Rails security guide and, you know, read it word by word. And then, you know, I developed a program, like, uh, on, like, you know, how to do security on Ruby on Rails. And I had no clue how to do it before that. Mm-hmm. So, same thing. I think it's, it's, it's not that hard. Uh, and anybody, like, you know, who has a technical uh, mindset and aptitude can do it.
0: Okay, okay. And in regards to growing and attracting talent, um, what's your approach from a CISO perspective in building out that pipeline and ensuring that your talent, which is in high demand everywhere, uh, stays with your team? Yeah. So actually, there are a lot of things which can be done uh, to attract talent.
1: Uh, and it starts with like like a thought process uh and again you have to play the long game and i think i always tell people like you know there are some companies which uh are looking to they identify talent and they court them and it starts literally at that like uh, you know you have people coming from traditional non-traditional backgrounds are there pipelines where you can you know take them internally and externally so internally like you know externally like, do you have an internship program uh in the internship program, are you actively soliciting out people like from non-traditional backgrounds? Uh, in Internally, you know, are you making giving this opportunity to other people? For example, like people who could, are in a program management role, maybe they can do security program management. People who are in QA roles, they can do application security testing. So you have to make sure that you come across a, as a team which is open to ideas, open to uh, training people, open to teaching people. Uh, open to do knowledge transfer uh, versus uh, like something which is, hey, you know, we are security people and, you know, we don't talk to anybody and, you know, we just do some cool stuff <laughs> versus like, you know, we are educated. And I think this educator mindset uh, needs to be talked about more, that we, we are not just, you know, a risk management function. We are educators and anybody who is willing uh, to learn, you know, we will do everything in our capacity to make sure that, you know, we have, we create opportunities for them uh, for a successful career. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm um, a board member of a a nonprofit called the whole humor, the whole cyber human initiative. And the whole point of that is to bring back the human into cyber. And like you mentioned, the educator aspect that you really have to start with the people understand the process before you you include the technology and the human is the foundation of all that. Um, did you have something to say? Yeah. And again, they're
1: like some very nifty ideas, which is, you know, um, organize meetups at your company, security meetups and you, know, uh, send those messaging out to, you know, different groups, non-traditional uh, people coming from non-traditional background, make sure the messaging goes out that, Hey, we have this meetup where we, you know, are teaching XYZ technology, uh, how to do you know API security, mobile app security, whatever. Also, in even in your job descriptions, uh, uh, if there's a you know fight for talent. Like I recently, I gave this idea that you should do a, like a video recording where you executives are talking about security. So demonstrate externally that there is support for security at the exec level. So you are, and you can have your own team members talk in the video, which is like, you know, what do we do? And when people relate that, hey, you know, this is the team, these are the kind of people I'll be working with. Uh, it creates a connection where people are like, if I have to choose between two companies, I would choose one which has, you know, gone the extra mile uh, uh, to uh, convey that th- they have a culture of security of, you know, trust uh, where uh, security will be supported uh, at the exact That's level.
0: I love that idea of having the security team um, share why working here is a good place. Because really, an interview is a, a two-way street, and um, that's a that's a great use case. I, I wanted to touch on some of the comments um, from our listeners. Uh, David mentioned that security paradigm explains the concept perfectly in his mind, and I think for for many. That, that's a good way to describe it. But um, I wanted you to touch on this a little bit. Um, how would you define the security paradigm? Uh,
1: <laughs> so uh, so the security paradigm for me is like you, the concepts are always the same. Like, you know, if you look at, you know, authentication, authorization, your confidentiality, encryption, logging, and so on. But each language and platform will have its, own way to do certain stuff uh, one example could be even the infrastructure of the cloud platforms that if you look at GCP and Azure yeah. the paradigm is still the same that you want to secure it you want to make sure it's all hardened up it's all patched up it has been architected well but they just you know call it different things uh, so that's like in my mind you know is the security paradigm that the basic principles are the same they're applied a little bit differently and the syntax might be different. Uh, uh, for
0: different platforms or languages uh, or platforms. Okay. Okay. Um, One of the other comments was um, great interview as usual. I love book recommendations. Uh, Do you have any good reads that you've been reading lately? Uh, uh, Book
1: recommendations. So I think like... um, i there's a one very interesting lesson i learned like you know early in my career from uh, one of my uh, one of the speakers which came to my university and uh, it was around that uh, he said that you know i treat my team as my students and i have a management book open a technical book open and some sort of self help uh, book open at
0: oops it looks like we lost our guest Um, but as soon as he returns, we will bring him back on. I think what he was saying before he dropped off was that he has three types of books open, uh, technical book, a management book, and, uh, some sort of self-help book. And I I totally agree with that. I, I myself have, um, several different books in my bookshelf. And one of the, the most recent ones was a self-help book that I recently purchased, um, looks like we got him back on the stream. Um, So you you just finished mentioning that there's three types of books, uh, management, technical, and self-help. Was there any specific one that you wanted to recommend? Um, Specific one. I think I like
1: reading company specific books. So for example, I think, you know, I uh, read, you know, recently the everything store and then I read the, the work rules uh, from Google and you Hmm. Uh, you, uh, you know, get to have a picture of like how management philosophies at each of these uh, companies developed. Uh, And I think there's one which came from Netflix, which is like in my reading queue uh, very recently uh, around uh, Netflix, which I plan to read uh, shortly. Uh, So I think those are the ones which uh, intrigued me is that, you know, each of these companies are very different from the way they have evolved uh, from a, a management philosophy perspective, so when it comes to management, I think uh, you know those are uh, uh, some of the things which i 've read recently, which is company specific books which talk mm-hmm. about the evolution of a company that they were in a specific industry or business domain, but how they came together as a team and how uh, because literally like every the the way they interview people, the way they define their own objectives and goals how they execute is there is a very different management philosophy and some of these books you know give some window
0: into those philosophies and which is very fascinating absolutely totally agree Um, another one of the questions is regarding regarding cloud platforms um, if there is one that moving towards that path uh, is there one that's bigger or that you would target or why would you go with one cloud platform over another
1: No, so actually, uh, you know, one is like, I'm like platform agnostic, uh, but typically, and again, this is, uh, you know, well known that typically startups will, uh, you know, are fairly uh, inclined towards, uh, maybe go towards AWS and larger enterprise are more geared towards uh, Azure platform and with, you know, some companies uh, choosing GCP in the enterprise. So I would say that if you are targeting like, uh, you know, startups, maybe AWS, Uh, might be a better uh, uh, to target initially. And then if you're targeting large enterprise and, you know, move into Azure and GCP.
0: Okay. Um, One of the recent evolutions that I've seen from um, GCP was that they had the ability to segregate out um, very sensitive compute type environments all within the same space so that you could have very sensitive government-like communication within the same uh, cloud tenant, um, their regular compute to make uh, communication between the the organization itself, uh, both secure as well as being able to to speak to all all the employees. Have you worked in any of those environments before?
1: Yeah, so I think... um... You know, Google has done great job, like you know, down to the chip level. Even the way they design their chips, uh, and they have this, you know, even the keys are broken up. So it's a very uh, nifty way of how do you make sure confidentiality um, uh, in a in a shared infrastructure environment. Uh, and they have put a lot of thought process. But I would say, it's, uh, you know, it's not just Looks GCP. Like
0: Oh, go ahead. Sorry. We, uh, we I
1: think uh, The other cloud uh, platforms have done an equally great job. Like I think, you know, I've seen the evolution of, you know, key and secrets management in AWS, how it's, you know, it was initially they had uh, these uh, Luna appliances and then they brought it, they had the cloud HSM and then they had their own hardware now dedicated HSMs and so on. So I think each of the platforms have gone through a journey uh, where, uh, uh, they have put a lot of thought process around you know key management secrets management confidentiality and
0: how they handle encryption in general wow we've gone through um, th- such a journey from the the inception of a startup to uh, growing to a very mature stage and and talking about the different cloud platforms um, anything else you would like to add um, before we wrap up so I think one uh you know thing which you
1: recently started was you know around like coaching, and I do have some ideas and thought process around that. so when I think of a mentor is like you know you find someone whom you really respect and you go for advice and you know if you have any issues you know someone who who you will use a sounding board but when i use i think when i word use coach or coaching it's for me it's almost like a job. That you know I am training you for success, which is that you know I've been there, done that, you know, I know how to uh, make sure that you are basically achieve the objective goal. So it's more rigid, it's more stringent. You are basically also holding the person accountable that you know you got to practice, you need to do all these stuff. Um, so this is where I think you know uh, people still uh, people have started to look for mentors. And I would say that people should start looking for coaches where uh, they coach them for success. And I think having it like a you know formal relationship where like you know you get into some sort of arrangement with you know someone you identify as a coach, so it's a win-win situation on both sides. Uh, and I'm glad that you know what you're doing uh, uh, in terms of you know establishing like people who uh, really need help uh, enter the cyber uh, cyber domain. Um, Yeah,
0: I I think um, with regards to uh, using the word coach, there's, there's multiple different definitions, right? Um, There's teacher that takes public information and relays it. There's a mentor that kind of combines that public information with their own experiences and relays it. Um, And then there's a coach, they might not necessarily be an expert in all the areas, but they work with their clients to help them overcome obstacles, develop milestones, and train them along the way. So I think um, wh- what you're mentioning is kind of between a-, a mentor and a teacher. And I, I definitely think that um, th- that's very helpful with regards to startups, because uh, when a- maybe an advisor would be a-, a great term for that, is that if you work through multiple startups, you can really help advise them on the best ways to, to go forward. And ultimately, it's still up to that business owner to, to make that decision. Yeah. And I think
1: one, and this is just like my general advice to anyone who is listening, is that if I reflect back that what I could have done better is that I think we just need to t- start talking to more people. So many times people are a little bit like um, apprehensive about reaching out to other people. Uh, and I say the worst thing, you know, that someone will not have time for you, but reach out to as many people as you can, uh, talk to as many as people as, as you can. And many people like, you know, they are givers and they'll give you the gift of their time and the knowledge and their experience. And the second thing I would say that, you know, don't, if, especially if you are starting new, mm-hmm you know, uh, try to join a community, build a community of, uh, you know, fellow uh, professionals who are trying to do the same thing. So you don't have to be, you know, do this by yourself because then you're like, hey, you know, I tried to do it, you know, I didn't succeed and, you know, I ran into a roadblock. So it's easy to get demotivated. But if you become part of a community or you build a community uh, around uh, these goals that, you know, who are other people who are trying to do the same thing? Can we get together and, you know, build an environment where we learn together and, and we succeed, uh, that's something uh, would be really, really helpful.
0: You don't have to do it alone. Yeah, speaking speaking of um, kind of building that community, I actually uh, have a great use case of that. Um, InfoSec Live, which uh, gave us a, a wave a little bit earlier, uh, Simon Lindstedt that uh, kind of set up this community, he was coming into the field just brand new and wanted to create a community for other individuals to kind of have that shared space. And while many of them might have joined from LinkedIn and other communities, here you have the shared space of many going through the same journey. So uh, definitely recommend it as well. Um, and someone else said nailed it with regards to um, what you were saying earlier, so. Um, Thank you so much. Truly appreciate it. Um, if someone wants to follow up with you, where are the best places to follow up with you? So LinkedIn is the best place. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, uh, so feel free,
1: you know, to connect with me. You know, shoot me a message, and you know, I'll try to help in the best way possible I can.
0: Okay, I'll make sure to add your uh, LinkedIn profile to the comments as well as to the show notes. And I really want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Same Thank you for the invite, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care.